0: Morning everyone, we're going to be in Psalm 5, uh, I'm going to give a quick introduction to myself and, and we'll go there. I'm, I'm John Carter, uh, I, I attend Southeastern, but I'm actually fresh from California as of January, so on that note, if I step on any cultural norms, I apologize for that, I, I'm not trying to be rude, I just don't know any better. I've got four boys, and uh, I love them, and they, uh, they, they make my wife's life interesting at times, but uh, she still loves me for giving her four boys, and uh, no girl yet. The, this morning, we're going to be going into Psalm 5, and, and I read out of Revelation uh, 21 because, because that, that directs a little bit more closely to what's going on with with the future and with the temple, and we're going to touch a little bit on that towards the end of this, but we're going to Psalm 5, and, and it's a lament, and, and laments aren't what we normally like to get excited about. Uh, laments aren't, uh, or when, when, when you have sorrow, when you have sadness, it's not normally a thing that we really jump on and say, let's, let's bring that in and focus on that, but it's interesting, the majority of the Psalms are laments, and, and in light of the fact that Jesus was called a man of sorrow. I, I think it's appropriate that a lot of songs go to singing about when things are well-deserving of talking about the sorrow of life. I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing lots of stories about the three little pigs. You hear about the stories about these three little pigs and, and they've they decided that they are going to build houses and when one builds out of sticks and one builds out of, out of hay or straw and a third one builds out of brick and those first two... They, they just are content with their stick and straw house. But as, as we quickly come to in the story, we realize that, that that stick and straw falls short of stability. It falls short of safety. It falls short of the expectations that they had. And so you're left in between the second and the third pig looking for a, a better home, looking for something more stable, looking for something safe and I, I want to focus I want to look at Psalm 5 and focus on that that in-between stage in between the, the second pig and the third pig, where things are not going as planned you you, you set up and establish things and then you started going through life and it, it seems that the enemy it seems that the big bad wolf it, it, everything is going wrong everything that you planned and established and built is literally falling apart and so here you are in search of something that is more stable, something that is not going to fall apart. If we go into Psalm 5, we read to the choirmaster for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning in need of you. Now we come here dependent on who you are. God, if you do not intervene, Holy Spirit, if you do not open our eyes, if you do not open my tongue, if you do not open our ears and our heart to what this psalm is saying, to what you want us to hear, God, we, we're in a real bad place. We need you. We're desperate for you to intervene and show us the glory and the beauty of who you are in a new and a fresh way. God, for the believer, restore us that spirit of salvation, that joy of salvation. And God, for the the young believer, I ask that you would give them a heart of conversion, that they would hear this word and that they would desire earnestly, that they would be eager to understand you more and turn their life to you. We love you, God, and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I I, want to teach us how to respond to laments, to this psalm of lament. How do we handle songs that talk about such hard and difficult things? How do we talk about things that, that that bring to us Pain. How, how do we deal with that? I mean, what, what do we do with that? The, the reality is we are all human, living in a fallen world, and there is difficulty that we are going to engage. King David started by saying, I'm going to sing about it. That's what I'm going to do. So he wrote about this. And he starts, and we know at the beginning that, that he wrote this, it says to the choir master, or not to the choir, yeah, to the choir master for the flutes. So he's wanting not just himself to sing, but he's all, choir master, we need to have you sing this Sunday morning. We need to have you sing this in front of people to hear about what's going on. And and, and so we're going to progress through this, and and at the end, we're going to look at how to respond. But but as we're progressing through this, we see that at the very beginning, David is showing absolute desperation before God. He says in verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. When we hear that word groaning, that's also the same word in Psalm 1 as meditation. And we think meditation, there's an often tendency to go to that Eastern religious meditation where we're humming and drinking a lot of tea. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is where you go and you get deep in the word and you study it. And, And when you think meditation or groaning biblically, there's this idea behind that word that is talking about muttering it. So, when you're walking through the day reciting Bible verses that you've memorized, you're doing what David is talking about here. You know, the, the Lord is my lamp, and he, he's going to light my path. You know, for God so loved the word, you're reciting those promises, you're meditating. Or when you're just in, in silence, See, just this voice, all I'm getting is a, uh And that's where you're at with God. You're you're just trying to form a word, and so it's just groaning. It's, It's not articulate. It's not a word, but it's he can hear the sobs. He can hear the cry. And so here we have David. If you could imagine a picture of a king, high and stately, sobbing on the floor, saying, my king, I need you. That's not the position of a king. A king does not go and bow down. But here the king of Israel is bowing down before his king because he knows, as, as we spoke about last week, or not we, but Justin spoke last week, the authority. Wh- whose authority does Jesus come from? King David knows that his authority comes from God the Father. And so, so here... In, in, verse, in verse 1, he's saying, consider my growing. And it moves into verse 2. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King, my God, for to you do I pray. For to you do I pray. And, and the thought that we need to understand there is this is not, oh, I pray to God when things get tough. You know, things went, didn't go quite as well as I planned this week, so I'll toss a nickel in the prayer bucket and keep going. No, 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 what it's saying here is, Plan A. There is no plan B. I'm going to put all the eggs in one basket. I'm going to count everything that God will come through for me. That he will come and he will take care of the situation. I am desperate and God you are the absolute only one who can do anything about this. It's not just to you, do I pray, but my prayers begin with you. It's not action, that didn't work, then I pray. No, it's Something goes wrong while I'm already in the middle of a prayer, so I will continue praying. Because with God, that's where our prayers begin. That's where the source of our comfort is at. And you move in from there from verse 2 to verse 3, and it says, O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now it's, it's an interesting, there's a quote I'm going to pull up in just a second, but it's in, in an interesting Thought that we got going on here in the morning. Now, some might say, "Well, well, John, in the morning is just an idea." Let's not be legalistic and say you need to start in the morning. I, I'm not that old. I'm early 30s. I haven't seen a lot. Still wet behind the ears, some might say. But one thing that I've learned from faithful Christians. Who, who, have, who have been a Christian longer than I've been alive, one thing that I've learned, that there is a significant difference when they are in the Word in the morning versus when they get to it. You see, legalism comes from, well, the Bible says in the morning, so that's what I'm going to do, and I did it, so I check the box and I move on. But no, what, what, what God is talking about here is devotion. Devotion. What David is talking about here is devotion. He says, very first thing in the morning, I'm coming before God. When I get up, I'm going to get to God first. Forget the breakfast, forget the newspaper, forget the Facebook, forget the phone. I'm going to get to God because I need him. Charles Spurgeon, in, in light of this verse, he says, devotion should be both the morning star and the evening star Now, I'm from California, so I don't know what stars are, but I'm sure you guys know what a star is, uh, having a few less city lights around here. But I mean, that is the first thing that that we see is our devotion to God, and that is the very last thing that we see is our devotion to God, just like we see a star early in the morning and a star first thing at night. David is not haphazard about the pain of life that he's suffering with. He's not waiting till it gets bad. He is in a, a state of constant need and dependence upon God. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. These aren't short prayers. These aren't shotgun prayers. We're not just doing it and moving on. C.H. Spurson also says of this. He says, "Let our prayers and praises not be flashes of hot, from the hot and hasty brain. Don't let these prayers be quick, no. But let our prayers be the steady burning of a well-kindled fire. If you're trying to keep warm at night, it doesn't work to light a match. Yes, the flame is hot, it will burn you, but you need a strong, steady fire to go. We, we come before God and we don't just light a match and then move on, blow it out, move on. No, we stand there and, and we wait for it. And say, so God, we're going to wait here. The idea here is, is, is one of, of sacrifice, waiting in the sacrifice in, in, the, in the tabernacle or in the temple, but it's also the idea of, of when you have dinner guests over. For those of you that have had dinner guests over, you come and you prepare a place for them. You set, out, you set out the fine china. You set out a tablecloth. We're not talking you went to McDonald's and grabbed some Happy Meals. No, you're setting everything out and you've, you've had that food in the crock pot all day and it's sitting there and it's ready to go. The only thing you need is for the guest of honor to arrive because it's at that moment that you will finally get what you are wanting. When you're having dinner guests over, you're not wanting to eat, you're wanting to be with them. When you're coming and praying before God, you're not just wanting to get your words out of your mouth, you're wanting God to come and present himself to you in a very tangible way so you can say, that is the God that I am waiting for. My God, my King, this is who David prayed to. And David, he moves on and, and he says, he says, this is the problem, this is what's going on. He says, for my for you are not a God, in verse 4, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What, what David is saying, is, says, God, I'm calling you out. You hate evil. Why is this wickedness going on in my life? Think about David's life. David was a man after God's own heart, yet he was persecuted by Saul. That's hard, that's hard to, to put together some days. It, it's hard to say, God, if I'm pursuing you, why are things hard? And then we remember David was persecuting his man after God's own heart, Jesus was a man of sorrow. Jesus promised us suffering. So this, this coming of David before, before uh, his God is not accidental. It's intentional. And he knows that God hates evil and he is going to do something about it. When my kids come to me and say, hey, my brother, he, he kicked me. Well, I didn't kick you. Go to him and tell him to fix it. You know, we need to go to the source of the problem. Like, God, we have evil people, and you're the only one that can fix it. You're the only one that can fix this situation I'm in. We need that God. And because we know that he hates evil, we know that he will judge evil, we know that he will squash everything that is against him, we know that we can trust Him to take care of it. He says in verse 7, But I through the stead, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Mercy. David does not come before God because of his righteousness. Anyone who sat through Sunday school knows David messed up. He messed up with Bathsheba in a handful of different ways. He messed up when he counted and did a census of Israel. David is not an innocent man by anyone's standard. So how is it a man who is not innocent is able to go before a righteous God? He says, "Because God, by your righteousness, by what you have, by what's in you, doesn't that sound like the cross? That is the, that mercy that David is calling upon is the same mercy that we call upon for salvation. We don't come to the cross and say, "Hey Jesus, I appreciate that, but I got it from here." We know where that leads. That leads to certain death. That leads to our own uh, eternity in hell. We come to the cross and say, God, by the fact of what you did on the cross, by what you did willingly, I am able to come before you and seek relief. That is mercy. And here David is calling on that mercy. He's saying, but through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. We come before God, and there's this tension of, of fear. A lot of times I hear people say, oh, well, it's like a nice religious fear. No, this fear is trembling. Okay, we, we've got to go boldly into the throne room of God. We've got, Paul or we've got that said in, in Hebrews. And, and, and so we know there's a boldness going before the throne room of God, but then there's this fear of God. Now, how do, how do you how do you reconcile those let them live in tension don't don't, don't mute god don't bring him and make him safe to make him awesome cuz don't make god a kitty cat because I'm going to tell you this it is much more amazing to tell someone you petted a wild lion than it is to say that you petted a domestic cat I went over to my grandma's house the other week and and I petted her cat. Wasn't that amazing? I have my own. I went to Africa and I walked up to a wild lion and I petted its mane. We walk before a wild lion. He is a fierce lion. He cannot be contained and yet he allows us to come before him in mercy and his steadfast love. How beautiful that is that we do not find judgment before Him, but we find pardon, we find peace, we find forgiveness. In verse 9 and 10, we find some very harsh language. For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction. There is nothing in their mouth. They are set on destruction. They are a rusted, seized bolt or nut on a bolt. It is not going to move. They are set in their ways. Everything that is in their heart and in their passion and desire is evil. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. In California, we don't have graveyards attached church buildings like this. Very, very foreign for me to see that. Catholic churches have it here and there. Maybe you might find one if you look for one, but it's, it's very out of place. So, so, this may not land as well here, but, but I still think it, it, it settles to a certain point. Our culture has, has learned to separate itself from, from death. Our culture has learned that death is over there and life is over here. So, so when people start dying or getting close to death, we, we, we isolate them because we don't want to get close to it. And so when we think of open grave right here, what we think of is a nice, brand-new, clean grave, no dead body. And so we might be prone to say, oh, what David is saying here is, oh, be, be aware, be cautious, don't fall in this open grave. But that's not exactly what David is saying here. David is saying their throat is an open grave. What I want you to think of is I want you to think of the picture of, of Jesus and Mary and Martha in front of Lazarus's tomb. And Jesus says, open the tomb. And what does Martha say? He stinks. There's a stench. It smells. What is going to happen when we open that tomb is our senses are going to be assaulted the gag reflex is going to come up. What David is saying about his enemies is when they open their mouth, it creates a physical, tangible filth within us. Our stomach turns. We are disgusted. We are repulsed by what we experience when the, when, when the evil speak. That is not a beautiful picture. In verse 10, he says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Fail them, judge them, hold them accountable. Now, this might be a moment where we're quick to say, you know what, God, you're right. I've been suffering. You know what, God, you're right. I'm going through hard times. You're right, God. There are people who are out to get me. Judge them. I mean, just give it to them. Christian, pull back. Pull back for a second before we go there. Because there's, there's a couple things. One, David is a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is in and of himself righteous. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We, when we look at our enemies... And this is hard, knowing how filthy and gross and disgusting sin is and wickedness is. Even in light of that, our responsibility is not to judge them. Our our desire is that those who reject God, my desire is that those of you who reject God, is that you you would repent, you would turn away, you would come back. So before we take this verse and just start layering it on the bumper stickers and putting it on the Facebook and sending it on postcards that we'd pull back and say, you know what? I know the death that I was saved from and I don't want my enemies to even experience that. This is, this is a biblical tension that we have to live in. This is this weird zone of we're, we're in the fall. We know that man has fallen, and we're longing for the day that Jesus will return. We're longing for the day that we will see God descend, and we're longing for that day. And, and we, want, we want sin and evil to be judged, but at the same time, we don't want our enemies to be judged. There's still time. Don't go there. That is, that is our mission. When we hear the words, for God so loved the world, we, we could easily rephrase it as, for God so loved his enemies. That picture of world there isn't love and, and peace and, and rainbows and unicorns and butterflies and, and cotton candy clouds. No, what that is saying is, you guys have rebelled against me and I still am sending my son so that you might live. What a beautiful picture that is so weird. But I think that that fits nicely into this next part. It says, But let all who take refuge, verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice, let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Prior to Christ, at best, we were rebels in a traitor's army, at best, we were part of a coup. At best, we were looking to overthrow a government. And yet, at the cross, at the moment of the cross, we gain an ability to sing a loud, loud song. Why? Because now we have left being a rebel in a traitor's army and we moved to being refugees We are under the protection of the Almighty God. No longer condemned to death. No longer looking um, forward to the next debauchery. But our sight and our vision is on a future kingdom. On a future coming. On a future king who will come and will conquer the worst of our situations. That is the beauty of which we live in. That is the source of our song. That is why we don't get to sing songs. That is why we get to sing boldly. That is why we get to glorify God in wonderful ways. Not because of anything that is within us, but because of what is being given to us. When we come and we sing this morning, we don't go, do I like that song? Do I like the way they're doing it? Are they playing it in the right key? It's not about you. It's not about me. We are coming to acknowledge the God that saved your life. Who cares what you are singing? All that matters is that God gets the glory because at the end of the day, you and I are dead without God saving us. There is no song in hell. But we get to spend eternity singing a a cry of victory, not that we earn, but that was given to us. That, that is marvelous. So what do we do with this song of lament? I mean, it's, you've got, I mean, David, what is your issue? I mean, come on. Can't you see the beauty? Just just cut out the rest of that nasty stuff. Just get to those last two verses. There's three things I want us to think about when we read laments. And there, there's a lot of things you can think about. Go, go pick up a commentary. Go pick up, a, you know, a, a newsletter or something by a, a really good uh, teacher, theologian, or someone strong in the faith. And you're going you're to find lots of things. But just three. Just three. One. You're a witness. You... you and when I say you, I'm talking about the Christian. So if, if, if you're not a believer, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to set you aside for a second. Think about this. that The temple was once localized. David had to go to a physical location. If he did not go right here, then he could not physically express the presence of God. That you're stuck. You have to be there. So it's devastating when the temple is destroyed in the Old Testament. It's devastating when the temple is destroyed again in, in the beginning of, of the millennia, right after Jesus' uh, ascension. That is devastating. Why? Because that is, that is the representation of Jesus' physical presence. Think about this. We are the new temporary temple. In Revelation, we see that God is the, the final temple that will, that will come down. But we're the temporary temple. Where is the church localized? Nowhere. Why? Because it's everywhere. What do we get in the Great Commission? Go. What do we see all over in the New Testament? We just see Christians going. When we read Lament, this, when properly understood, should fuel us to go, we've got to tell someone. How sad it would be to leave a baby helpless on the ground, choking on its own vomit, and move on because I'm not. That, that, would, that, that doesn't settle right. We help. Now, we may not go to the ends of the earth to be a witness. We may not go to middle-of-nowhere Africa. But I can guarantee that all of us know at least one person who needs Jesus, who needs to understand the beauty, who needs to understand the rescue, who needs to understand the mercy and the compassion. This should fuel us to go, I know what I have. I need to give that to others. Talk to other believers to figure out how, to, how that's going to play out, what that's going to look like in real life. But you are a witness. The next one is humility. If you guys are familiar with 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. We humble ourselves before God. We know who he is. We know what he thinks of evil. We know what he is capable of. We know this is not a safe cat. We know this is a ferocious lion. Humility is necessary. It goes on to say, be watchful, be sober-minded, for your adversary, the devil, Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, unlike our lion, unlike our safety, Satan intends your destruction. And if we get out from behind God, we are certain to find ourselves in the jaws of Satan. Satan knows he's he's losing, and he will take anyone out any way that he can. He's not going to be cordial. He's not going to send you a nice letter. He's not going to encourage you to join his club. He's going to take you out. That is why, in humility, we need to say, God, I need you. I need you, God. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot even almost do it on my own. You just have to give me one more nail. No, I am fully, completely dependent on you, God. Day and night, morning after morning, I come before you, needing you. And the last one is perseverance. Think about David, God a man, uh, man after God's own heart, suffered. Think about Jesus, a man of sorrow. He suffered. The kingdom, the king of the universe, suffered. He promised those who would follow him would receive what the master would receive. Tertullian, a second century Christian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When you want to plant a vegetable garden, you get vegetable seeds. When you want to get a church, you plant Christians in the ground. Last time I checked, you only go in on the ground because you die. Suffering is certain persevere don't persevere because it might be worth it don't persevere because god might come through don't persevere because you hope that you might get something cool in heaven like a superpower and you'd be like superman no persevere Because you know one day you are going to see the beautiful God that gave himself for you. You're going to see the most beautiful things. You will never find yourself in heaven. You will never find yourself in eternity going, I wonder if I made the right choice. When we come to Psalms of Lament, when we come to Psalm 5, when we look at this thing, we go and we get humble. We persevere. And we tell people, we witness what we know, what we have seen, what we have heard. We're going to move into a time of, of reflection. And, and I, I uh, don't know the exact uh, traditions or, or customs you guys have here. So I, I, I'll respect them as you do them. But um, as the music is playing, consider them. Consider these things. Consider these psalms. I'll be up here if you need someone to pray with, but um, we'll pray, the music will start, and then we'll close. God, if there is anything that I have failed to clearly articulate, God, fill in, fill in the gap. And God, where I have misspoke, strike that from the record. God, we need you. Not because someone gets up here once a week and says, says it, but because it's true. And without truth, there is no meaning. We love you, God, and we are desperate for you. Oh, Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. To you be the glory forever, God. Jesus, And we pray. Amen.